Hello and welcome to our viewers on Crux Investor and also to our Cruxcast listeners. It's our new podcast series which we've just launched. I hope you enjoy this. This morning we're going to be speaking with Mike Young, who's the CEO of Vimy Resources. They're a uranium play in Australia. They've got two assets there which we'll be discussing. But first he's going to run through his views on Section 232 and also the price fixing in the marketplace. And at the end, hopefully we're going to run through the financial position of the company. So good morning, Mike. How are you? Good. Well, good morning for you. Good afternoon for me. Of course, of course, of course. You're in sunny Perth, I guess. We are, and it is indeed sunny today. Beautiful, beautiful. Okay. So, Mike, just to um, just set the scene for people, can you give us a two-minute uh, elevator pitch just to describe uh, Vimy Resources, please? Sure. So we're a uranium development company uh, at development and exploration. We have a, a big project called the Mulga Rock Project in Western Australia uh, that has uh, full environmental, uh, federal and state environmental permits. And we're currently working through the secondary approvals now. So those are your working permits and, and things like that. Uh, Mulga Rock does need a $55 contract price to work. Uh, that will be a three and a half million dollar, three and a half million ton pound a year operation. Uh, and you know we hope to bring that into into production in about 2022. So we're looking at going through the contract cycle through this year, uh, this calendar year, and then getting into um, financing uh, the first half of next calendar year, and with FID halfway through next year. Um, the second project that we have that um, you know there's a lot of excitement about in the short term is the Alligator River project that sits in what's called the Alligator River Uranium Province, and that's a, a, a really unexplored province because of uh, uranium politics and um, native title issues in, in Australia and Northern Territory. But Cameco, who we bought the project from, has done a great job of uh, achieving uh, granted tenure in some of the most prospective ground in the Alligator River area. Alligator River hosts Jabaluka, which is a 380 million pound deposit, uh, and also the Ranger deposit, which has been ha have been mined for 40 years, as well as Narbrelec. So it's a it's a very, in fact, geologically, it's identical to uh, the Athabasca Basin. So we like to call it the Athabasca Down Under. So we have a development project, which we can take into production. Um, and I might add that we do have a team of experienced people who have brought mines into production previously, including myself. And then we've got this really exciting exploration ground uh, up in the Northern Territory. Fantastic. Thanks for that summary. Um, so just to set the scene again for people perhaps uh, new to the uranium space and obviously uh, Vimy, I want to talk about a, a conversation we had recently with one of the American players, uh, this, this sort of alleged price fixing, this kind of unofficial OPEC as it were. You've got Kazatomprom, you've got Cameco, you've got Russia, you've got China, you've got some fairly major players with vested interests um, in the space and highly incentivized to keep the pricing at a point where junior explorers may find it difficult to come into production. I mean, what are your views on that? Well, firstly, I don't think because Adam Prom and Cameco lie awake at night worrying about energy fuels. They're very small. They always will be. They're not a major producer. They're not sitting on massively large deposits like because Adam Prom and Cameco are. 
Chemical and Kazatom Prom are on record and in personal conversations with them at wanting to see a higher price. Cameco particularly, they're a public company and they would, they would certainly like to see a higher price and increase their margins. We all know that the MacArthur River mine shut because they cannot get long-term contracts at a price that will sustain production there. And Tim Gitzel has said on several occasions that they won't open it unless the price is sustainably higher. With Kazatomprom, I think Kazatomprom is interesting because they have come from, they're a former Soviet Republic. They obviously started mining uranium a long time ago. Uh, in fact, Kyrgyzstan right next door is where a lot of the uranium for the nuclear weapons program came from. So long history of uranium mining. Um, you know, the early part of this century, they started ramping up that mining using in situ leach mining. Um, it's interesting, you know, because everyone has this, there's this mythology that the mining in Kazakhstan is actually really cheap, but we know that they were capitalizing their well development and it actually wasn't that cheap. And we saw that in the IPO. In fact, we'd been saying, for several years that their costs were more like $20, mid-20s, and that's certainly been the case in the IPO. So, because Adam Prom has come from a former Soviet, Soviet Republic, where they measured output in terms of volume, not necessarily value. They were just pumping out material, whether it be lead pipes or, or, or bolt bearings, they didn't act like a Western nation. So what's been really interesting about Kazad and Prom is they've gone through a huge transition, largely through the efforts of uh, Riaz Rizvi, um, to take that to an IPO. And to do that, they have had to basically westernize their accounting system. And I know they had a lot of consultants in there helping them with that, actually establishing what their true all-in sustaining costs were. And we know that their true all-in sustaining costs are, are, as I say, in the 20s. So now they're going to start behaving, my view is they'll start behaving more like a Western uh, style country uh, company, and they'll start looking at uh, value over volume. And they certainly would like to see the price higher as well, because as we know, um, the Kazakh material that they, that they get from their joint ventures, they have to sell at market prices. And the only market is the uh, spot market, which I actually refer to as an arbitrage market. Right. Okay. So, but, but don't the fundamental rules of supply and demand work? You know, we, we saw in the, in the last round that, you know, the huge number of companies started up, you know, some numbers quoted as you know, the highest 500 companies in the uranium space. Clearly too many, oversupply in the market, prices have come back down. You, so you don't feel that these larger producers have the need to almost regulate OPEC style um, the pricing to you know, stop that kind of surge of new entrants into the market? Well, I worked in iron ore. Um, I used to run an iron ore mine uh, called BC Iron, uh, which we took from first drill hole to first ore and ship in under four years. Um, and, you know, BHP and Rio and Valet were often accused of the same thing. Now, you know, these companies, they obviously are price makers because their volumes are so high that they can affect price. Are they behaving as a cartel? Well, no. If people have proof um, to, to, the, to the contrary, then they should put that forward. But, you know, it's a, it's a case of, it's a case of put up or shut up, really. So these guys are price makers. Now, they, they probably would like to see the price higher. And Tim Gitzel's on record saying that. And his actions speak louder than words because MacArthur River shut. Right. But, but when you say they want the price higher, I mean, is there, is there a kind of cutoff? Or they, you know, they want market forces applied and it, you know, drive it up as high as it will go? Where does it stop? I think, I think what you'll find is that um, there was a good bit of work done by David Sadowski when he was an analyst at uh, Raymond James. He did a paper in November 2015. Now, although it's a bit out of date, it's still a seminal bit of work. 
Um, and I would suggest um, your viewers actually look it up. It's available on the internet. And what it was, was it was a paper on the incentive cost of new production. And he had some very detailed, David, I know David very well. Um, he's someone you should have on your show, in fact. And uh, he, he did a lot of work. He has some very uh, detailed models. And what he did was he showed that at about $75 US, there's a massive plateau of, of production that can, could come on. And so that's, to me, that's the, that's the ceiling for anybody who has the capacity to manage the market. That's the ceiling. Now, obviously, you don't want to get close to the ceiling because you're going to bump your head. So, you know, maybe dial that back 10 bucks and you're looking at 65, 60. Now, of course, those are the numbers I like because those are good numbers for us. But when you look at the fundamentals of new supply, 75 does seem to bring in a lot of supply based on the work that David done. Now, uh, did, sorry. Um, now, obviously, with five years uh, time gap, those numbers might change a bit, but the shape of the curve will probably remain the same. Now, I think, I think both those companies have exhibited some an, an enormous discipline when they could have just flooded the market like BHP and Rio did during the last iron ore downturn. Um, I think a lesson can be taken from the iron ore space where you had FMG come in as an upstart, a lot of juniors, one of which I ran. Um, and, and so at the level we're playing at, at the level that uh, UR Energy and Energy Fuels are playing at, the big guys don't worry so much, but we're on the margins. And the important thing for us is, as with any commodity, there's a cost curve. Now, the problem with our business is no one really knows what that cost curve is. And, but with any commodity, there's a cost curve. And provided you as a producer can come inside that cost curve, then your competitors are the high-end the high uh, producers in that cost curve. And those are the guys I'm thinking about. So the guys who occupy the first and second quartile who are the big producers, and this is the same as iron ore and other commodities, nickel is a good one. Um, I can't worry about them, right? The guys I need to target are the guys who are higher cost producers than I am. And so what I need to do is get in under them with my costs, keep my costs down and remain competitive. So, you know, guys like us, the third quartile is the sweet spot. Now, a lot of juniors won't tell you that. They'll say, no, no, we're first quartile. Well, you know, according to our price graph, which we supply, most of the first quartile secondary supply, and then you get Olympic Dam. So there's not a whole lot of room there. So, you know, we look at that third quartile because you've got some buffer, but that's where you want to be and that's what we target. That, that's, that's kind of interesting. You know, you're, you're saying that the, the majors, you're too small for them to worry about at, at this point. And I think you're right. If you look at other commodities, um, you know, the majors have, have played it a certain way. But isn't there an opportunity for them if they get the pricing right, they make it very difficult for some of the smaller players to get off the mark, even if they're sitting on great assets with a lot of pounds under the ground, they're going to run out of cash at some point and can be scooped up for, you know, huge discounts. Yes, that happened in the iron ore space. Absolutely. And that, that's, always a, that's always a concern. But that's a game. That's a game. It, absolutely. And some quality assets there. You know, if you sweat those guys and you pick them up for a song, you do two things. You've picked up a quality asset cheaply and you've also sequestered the, the production for the foreseeable future. But the key thing is let's look at the demand side. So the demand right now is dominated by America. We know that they've just gone through a hiatus because of Section 232. Um, I, can, I can honestly tell you that the world has Section 232 fatigue, right? But 
let's look at how they manage their contracts. So, so what the utilities do is they do portfolio management. So what they'll do is they'll, they'll layer cake it and they'll have base load, pardon the pun, they'll have base load from the Cameco's, the Kazadam Proms, the bigger producers. They want, they want spread of, of supply, they want uh, security of supply, and they like to see geographic and country risk uh, uh, spread. And so we know from our discussions, because we have uh, a guy named Scott Heinen who works in the States and has worked with Cameco, worked with Dominion, we know how they layer cake their contracts. And we know, we know that there is space for us in that portfolio management. So while Cameco and, and Kazadamprom may keep the price down, the utilities don't want to buy all the material from two users. So that's why if you're nimble, like, and I learned this in iron ore, selling iron ore into a space that was dominated by BHP, Rio and Ballet, that if you're nimble enough and you, you can stay inside the cost curve, you're going to find customers, you're going to sell your material. Your margins aren't going to be as high, but when you're a small company with lower overheads, you know, and, and the key thing is, and, and I might add that my philosophy is paying dividends as soon as possible, you actually return a lot of value to shareholders. Okay, that, that's really interesting. So you, you're, you're saying that there is an, a niche for you in there. Um, obviously, you're saying lower lower prices, but the, and the util, utilities are looking I, I say, for a bit of certainty. So they, 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 you think they'll continue with long-term contracts. That's, that's part of their buying philosophy going forward. Nothing's changed there. Because I think there's been a few hypotheses about the fact that why not stick with just spot price going forward, you know, given the given what pricing's done over the past few years. That would actually be a good outcome because if you if you actually freed the market up and it became a truly free market with a clearinghouse and the spot price was a true spot price and not an arbitrage floor price, mm-hmm. you would see the cost of uranium move towards the marginal cost of production, which on an all-in sustaining cost basis is 55 to $60. And on top of that, if you have return on, on equity, you've got a higher price. I would love nothing more than to see a true uranium market but we know that's not going to happen. No. And part of that is, is because, you know, the fuel cycle takes 18 to two months to two years, and they just want to have that material waiting to go into the reactor and know that it's going to be, you know, in train. Steel mill shuts down, it's costly. Nuclear plant shuts down, it's really costly. Yeah, that's true. So I, I guess given the way that you're painting this picture, you think there's a future for junior uranium miners like yourself in this uh, space. I do, and I think it's the miners who are ready to go now that are the ones that are gonna benefit. So no doubt, I've, I've, been, I've been, as I said to you earlier, I'm 58, I've been in the industry a long time, I've seen lots of booms and busts, and it's always the same cycle, right? It's the early movers who get the advantage, the early movers who do, you know, corporately they, they get taken out, they do mergers, they do all the things that happen when you're in the space that's growing. And then, you know, everyone comes along and the next thing you know, there's, there's 110 uranium miners, but they've missed the boat, right? And so it's the guys, we're a very small group, right? Yeah, you're permitted, you've got some drilling done, you, you've got a, some line of sight as to what's under the ground. So you feel things are still in your hands. This is not out of your hands, you're, you're, you're in control. Yeah, I feel in control. We, we do a lot of research, we do... You know, Julian Tapp, who works with us, is on the the supply-demand working group with the WNA. You know, so we have a lot of, uh, well, let's call it inside information on supply-demand dynamics. And, you know, the fact that we have uh, Scott Hyman working for us in the States gives us on-the-ground intel 
you know, he's, he's connected to NEI, he's connected to WNA. So, you know, we, we do have a lot of confidence. Um, but as all, all good uh, managers, you should have a plan B. And plan B is basically the Alligator River. And so we, uh, there's a, a full definitive feasibility study completed on Mulga Rock. So that's technically de-risked, waiting for the tide to rise. Um, Alligator River, while we in Australia aren't allowed to release preliminary economic assessments, um, we have said that it would work in this market. Right. That, that, that is a high-grade deposit, albeit at the moment small. Um, we want to do more exploration to discover other deposits, create a satellite um, pit scenario, if you like. Um, but the angularly deposit at 1.3% works today. Well, let, let, let's, let's come back to the asset because we are going to talk about it in some detail in a minute. I want to get on to, again, just in terms of the scene setting, describing the uh, arena in which we're playing. Um, we talked about it a second ago, section 232. The world is fatigued by the, by the topic, but the world still doesn't quite understand what it means. It doesn't understand what it means for US players or other, let's say, US-friendly countries, uh, and indeed, you know, how the uranium, uranium space is going to react to it. So what's your views on the impact of 232? And in fact, how is it going to be structured? <laughs> um, well, that's anyone's guess. I mean, in the early days of the 232, um, in fact, it was September last year in London at the WNA, we were meeting with one of the fuel buyers. And, and he said, uh, you know, we've run 100 different scenarios of what it could look like. And then it goes to the president. So, you know, the inference was it could be anything, right? It could be you have to get uranium from the moon. Who knows, right? But we think we've done a bit of work on this. Again, Julian, Julian and I have sat down and thought about this pretty deeply. We don't think it'll be tanked. And David Talbot at 8 Capital put a good paper out several weeks ago on what the tariffs would have to look like to incentivize production in the States. And I think he... I can't remember that. I, I have ADHD, so remembering details and I, you know, we don't mix. But I think the tariffs were plus 100% to about 150. That's what the tariff had to be to incentivize enough new production in America. You know, so I, I think that's off the table. So then you look at quotas. Now, a 25% quota, which the petitioners are asking for, um, depending on who you ask, is not feasibly possible in the United States in the foreseeable future. They just don't have the production ready to go. Um, how much could they ramp up? I don't know. They say they could ramp up very quickly. I've done a lot of permitting around the world and I know that permitting uranium projects takes a long time. It would take them a long time to get up to 25%. It would take a lot of new players and you would create a bifurcated price market. You would have a US price, which would have to top $100 and then you'd have the rest of the world price. So I don't think that's gonna happen. But what, what can happen, I think, is that you have country-specific tariffs. This is, this is what we think is going to happen. So I'll just say that I think uh, the consensus is that the president will take the full 90 days to make his determination. Um, not surprising. Uh, in university, I was the same. I didn't study till the last minute. Uh, we're all the same. It's human nature, right? But he has to balance keeping... A nuclear industry which in the unregulated markets is marginal because of the price of gas and, and subsidized wind and solar he has to balance that against having uh, a, a fuel industry in the states if they want to have mines and, and downstream processing etc so it's, it, he's got to balance that and so i think 
I think it'll be um, a form of country specific tariffs. I mean, if there is truly a national security issue. Well, do you think there is? No, I, I don't think there is. I think if there were truly a national security issue, um, then U.S. producers buying their material on the spot wouldn't be buying it from Kazakhstan and et cetera. But the, the issue is if there was truly an issue, wouldn't it be better to leave it in the ground until you need it? Maybe that's the outcome. <laughs> that's not the outcome. The petitioners. Right. So I, 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 think, I, think the, I think the national security issue was an afterthought um, from after when the petition was actually put in. So do you think, it's, do you think that's disingenuous? I actually, yes. I actually believe that the petitioners were looking to catalyze discussions with the utilities and it was a scare tactic that got out of control. It certainly got everyone talking, for sure, for sure. But I think there's an expectation in the market, certainly with U.S. investors or people in, invested in, in, in U.S. equities in the uranium space, that this will see an immediate bump. Now, the reality is whatever is determined, let's say it's positive, it's still going to take the company, I'm told by the CEO, five, six years for them to actually you know, optimize you know, that decision. Do you think that the US uranium equity equities are going to see a bump or is it just business as usual and this has just been a, a discussion which has been, you know, put out there and people are going to, you know, crack on as normal? No, no, it's had a fundamental effect on the market. And the reason is that the utilities basically, their, their contracting cycles became frozen. And that was a word that they used often with us when we visited them, that, that we are, our contracting is now frozen because no one's going to sign a contract with the utility saying, well, we'll agree to this price, but if the 232 goes a certain way, we're going to have to rip up the contract. So their view was, there's no point writing the contract. And you also have to remember that the utility spent an inordinate amount of time dealing with the petition. So we know, we know that there were hundreds, if not thousands of man hours spent on the petition, the original submissions and the DOC questionnaire. But do, doing what? Spent, time spent doing what? I mean, how are they trying to influence that? No, no, actually writing submissions. The DOC questionnaire, I don't know if you ever saw it, but no. thank God we're not an American company because I would have had to hire 20 people, right? I know, I know that, that the, the number of man hours, I can't disclose it because you know, these, these conversations are in private, but the number of man hours that the utility spent just on the DOC questionnaire were, were extraordinary. You know, I mean, it, they, really, they really were full time on this issue. You know? really? and, and so, I mean, the DOC now has one of the best databases on earth in terms of um, all the utilities in America now because the questionnaire is extraordinary. The depth they were asking, and they're, you know, they're, they're asking to go back 10 years on your contracts. Now, imagine a company like Exelon with 26 units. We want to see 10 years of contracts for 26 units. That's 260 years of contracts that they have to go fish out of their whatever they keep them in. Right. So, so the DOC is um, treating this seriously. It's a, a serious consideration, but in the context of all the other energy uh, suppliers out there. Um, Sorry, I just there was one one other thing I wanted to add, and I think you hinted on it. So once this is finished, and and I'm sorry I went off on a tangent, but as I said, I'm ADHD. 
Um, once this is finished, the certainty will come back into the market. They'll know what the playing field is. They can see into the future. Say it is a 25% um, quarter. Say that's, you know, that's what comes out. Well, they're going to know that in the, in the next five years and maybe even 10 years, they're going to have to buy that uranium somewhere else. And so the certainty will come back to the market. Now, the utilities have been inactive for almost 18 months. And their they're uncovered positions in 21 and 22 jumped by 30%. You know, so they got to get their skates on. And so I think what you'll see is now that we have certainty on, on the playing field, they're going to start writing contracts again. Now, my belief is that we are never going to see a spot price surge like we saw in 07. I think what you're going to see is that the spot price will be dragged up by the contracts. Right. Interesting. That's probably because the spot price, as we know, is an arbitrage market. Of course. We know that. Right? It's not a true spot market in any sense of the word. So the spot market will always follow contracts. So if the, if the spot players can get, you know, they'll pay whatever it is to make a margin to sell it into a contract. So I think that's what you're, you're going to see certainty return. And my view is if certainty returns, you'll see contracts getting written. And we know, we know from Cameco, who's one of the lowest cost producers on the cost curve, we know that the price has to be higher. Right. So... It, 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 to a degree, is it also controlled by what the where the um, end user chooses to buy their energy from? So that's what the utilities have, you know, are, you know, got in the back of their mind. They, they've. Do you mean the customer, the guy turning his lights off and on in the exactly. house? Exactly. Well, I think I think the, the issue is America. You know, it is right now. It's the biggest market, and China's you know doing what they can to catch up. And by I think twenty thirty, they'll supersede America. Um, France has announced that they're going to push back their, their nuclear shutdown for 10 years, which is, you know, that's just a typical politician kicking it down the road for another decision. Um, the interesting thing is that um, we're seeing in some American states now that non-emitting credits, uh, zero emission credits are now being given to nuclear power plants, right? So I think, I think we'll start seeing as, as the um, uh, climate change uh, crisis, if you want to call it that. I'm a geologist, but the crisis, the Scientology, as it consumes people's psyches and they're looking for answers, you're seeing more and more people turning to nuclear saying, well, actually, you know, when we look at it scientifically, it's not nearly as dangerous as we thought, and it's actually really efficient, and we should be looking at nuclear power. You're looking at small modular reactors, which I think in the next 10 years will be commercialized. And way down the track, you're looking at fusion. I think that's a long way off. Um, but I think what you'll see is that is that nuclear energy in the non in the OECD countries will remain static, but in the non OECD countries, you're going to see a lot of growth. So I think people are are you know people are worrying more about you know how that energy is being produced than they are really about about the cost. I mean that's obvious. That's a big topic, and perhaps we come back to that another another time because it's a it's a very emotive subject. And we know this from the feedback we've had from you know our YouTube subscribers and on Twitter, um, people. It's a this whole clean energy versus toxic waste coming together, and you know both sides are intransient. There was a good. There was a good. Um, uh, can I just say something? I really, I really love the fact that you put out there on Twitter that you're going to interview me and people engaged and ask questions. I just think that's fantastic. And, and I love it. I love interacting with your, uh, with your uh, followers, but also the followers on Twitter. Um, I just wanted to put that out there. Um, and I lost my train of thought completely. 
something. Oh, I know what it was. There was something on Twitter that I retweeted, and right. it was an article on how much waste is actually out there. Yeah. Is this the Coke can one? Ever? No, no. That's that's how much a person requires for an entire for right. an entire uh, lifetime. Right. Um, no, it's three hundred and seventy thousand tons of waste. Now that sounds like a lot. But there's about 20 million tons of solar panels in China alone that will become waste in about 20 years, you know, yeah. leaving that aside. So that would fill a soccer pitch to about three meters high, 10 feet. That's how much waste there is. There's nothing. You know, it's not an issue. But when you look into the spent fuel uh, and you look into safety and you look into nuclear power in terms of how much power it delivers for how little fuel it uses scientifically and not emotionally, then you start to go. And Mike Schellenberger is a great example. I mean, he was, he was, um, I don't know if you know who Michael is, but he's a great blogger, um, ran for the governor of California to highlight the fact that they were shutting down the nuclear power plants. But he was, he's a convert. And like all converts, he's very loud about it. But he, he was a person who, who uh, uh, an environmentalist, very intelligent, wanted wind and solar, started looking into it and said, gosh, these things just aren't going to give us what we thought they would. We need to look at nuclear. So that's happening more and more. You can, you can actually wear a shirt saying, I'm a uranium miner now. And, you know, people come up and ask you questions. And the biggest response they always say is, gosh, I didn't know that. You know, it, it, is, it is fascinating. Like I say, it's, it's like pr probably a topic for another, uh, another conversation. Grab something. Just hang on a sec. <clears throat> so this is, this is a great... This is a great gimmick that I came up with a couple of years ago. Okay. So you can see how big this is, right? Yep. So if, if this was a piece of nuclear fuel, a, a, before it's burnt in a reactor, I actually could hold it this close without it being toxic. Um, but if it would weigh about three kilograms or about seven and a half pounds, which you know, it's not very big, um, that would power about 150 Australian homes for a year. That would offset the use of 400 tons of coal. Now, 400 tons of coal would be a million of those cubes. It would be a cube like that six meters high. You know, and it would ba basically offset, in fact, the amount of uranium that Mulga rock will produce will help to offset the equivalent of 13% of Australia's total CO2 emissions. You know, so when you start looking at that and you start looking at it scientifically and non-emotionally, you just go, what are we doing? You know, it's 53% it's of America's non-emitting power. It's 20% of their electricity. If you have any information you want to like share with us and we can get out there, heavily branded with Vimy, of course, uh, we'd, we'd like to see that. Well, let, like, let's get on to what everyone wants to hear about, um, which is Mulga Rock and Alligator River. Um, and I'm sure that you want to talk about as well. So why don't you kick off, and, uh, kick off with Mulga Rock and tell us a little bit about that and I'll dip in with questions. I'll go back through its history. It's really interesting. It was discovered in, in 19, late 1970s by the Japanese. Completely blind deposit. What they did was they basically bulldozed a road through the Australian bush, basically in the middle of nowhere, for 160 kilometers. And they drilled a hole every four kilometers. And that's how they hit it. Didn't know it was there. They just knew that the geology was right. Um, they then spent 20 years working on it um, due to political pressure back home a corporate issue back home and political pressure in Australia. They quit. Um, a gentleman named Mike Fuser, who's one of our shareholders, picked it up and listed a company called Energy Minerals Australia in 2008. Um, in 2013, I had left the iron ore company I was running, uh, mainly because all we were doing was making money and, and I was bored. <laughs> right. so, so it was a great gig, but uh, we weren't really 
um, doing a lot of business development. We, we were just, you know, hugely successful from a corporate standpoint, but not what I wanted to do. I love building mines. So uh, I got involved uh, back then and we, we recapitalized the company, had a bit of debt, needed some money. Um, Andrew Forrest came in. Uh, Andrew Forrest uh, is 38% shareholder of Fortescue Metals Group. It's a 20, uh, $16, 18000000000 billion iron ore company. Um, and then we renamed it to Vimy. And it was just, uh, Vimy's a, a town in Northern France. Uh, we're in World War One. the Canadians had a very successful battle and my great uncle was killed there. So um, it didn't translate into anything bad in uh, you know, Korean, Japanese or Chinese, which is something you always have to check. Um, but we rebadged it. Uh, we, we manned up, uh, or personed up, sorry. Uh, got a really good uh, COO on board who then, and it, we started the pre-feasibility, starting a feasibility study, uh, which released in January, 2018. Um, 15 year mine life, three and a half million pounds of uranium a year. Uh, average grade is about uh, 770 ppm, so 0 0.08 right. uh, percent. But we do plan to um, mine uh, higher grade for the first five years. This is a large open pit. This right. is basically an old river channel, 50 meters deep. The ore is basically just unconsolidated river sediment, organic. Um, we have no drill and blast, so our mining costs are very cheap. We're basically sand mining. Um, we're going to mine it like a strip mine. So we'll start at one end of this old river channel, dig a hole, and as we move forward, we'll dump the waste behind us. It actually has a really low residual footprint because of that. We're actually backfilling our pits, and we're really proud about that. The ore is then treated using uh, acid leach and resin, and we then extract the uranium and form uh, yellow kit. And it's a really technically simple process. During the DFS, we dug two 50 meter deep test pits and we did that to assess what I call the digability of the overburden because your mining costs are one of your big drivers for your OPEX. And then we took a hundred ton of sample, took that back to Perth and put that through a pilot plant. Mm -hmm. And the thoroughness of what we did can be highlighted by the fact that we have a bore field on site which will provide water for the operation. And we have more than enough for a 90 year operation. We actually trucked uh, two and a half tons of water from our bore field to the pilot plant in Perth to make sure that we were you know, crossing every T and dotting every I. Because normally you just use tap water and you know, add some salt to it to make it look like that water. But we actually, we literally trucked water from 800 kilometers from Perth in the middle of nowhere to Perth so that the pilot plant just would have no questions, just all answers. So, okay, so you've got a DFS, you've got a NPV here, 500 million bucks at 60 bucks. Yeah, you need that 60 bucks. You know, obviously today it's not at that. So um, you need something to change in the marketplace, um, obviously to monetize that. Not, not least of all, getting some cash into the company, presumably. Um, and that's not going to happen again until the price moves. So, I mean, what is what's the position uh, with regards to you know Mulga Rock at the moment? Is is just kind of sitting around and, and waiting for something to change, or do you continue to drill? I mean, how are you managing managing things? So we've got all the technical work is done. Um, we'll obviously have to go back through the DFS at some point in the next year and actually reset some of the assumptions on on costs, uh, cost of people, cost of equipment. Um, I don't, I don't think the, the costs haven't blown out 
in any huge amount in, in Western Australia in terms of a mining boom. Um, you know, we, we, we think that the DFS is still pretty valid, but we need to, to validate it. So we'll certainly do that this year, but I wouldn't think those numbers would change too much. Um, so the plan for us is this, is this is a marketing led financing. So we need to get contracts, which then lead to debt, which then lead to equity. So we need to have the contracts first. And, and that's where a lot of our effort has gone. Um, the section 232, look, section 232 has been a, to me, it's been a double-edged sword because yes, it has caused a lot of consternation, but it's actually pulled that rubber band back a bit. Meaning? Meaning if the utilities had been writing contracts normally, section 232 didn't happen. There was no hiatus in the contracting market. I think, I think what would have happened is that a lot of marginal producers would have written not loss-making contracts, but marginal contracts um, to just keep going until the, the price went up. Whereas I think by having this hiatus, there'll be a little bit more urgency on the buy side. And I think what you'll see is they'll just, I think you'll see a, a relaxing of, of what people want to pay to get that security of supply because the hiatus has actually caused some people to go by the wayside. That's, well, that, that's, that's an interesting thought. If you, if you think that people will relax that those thresholds for, you know, you know, I'm, I'm an ex-banker, you know, we, we needed, you know, certainty on lots of different moving parts before we'd, you know, consider investing uh, into something. So, you know, Mulga Rock is at that point where you've, you've done the DFS, you're, you're pretty much ready to go. We're working through what are called the secondary permits. So you need your mine closure plan, mine management plan. Those are, those are like getting a permit to build your house. You just go through a, an exercise with the government and we're currently doing that now. It's it's a it's a known process, and um you know I know uh, the Australian government at the moment isn't necessarily pro nuclear, but it's letting you mine, yeah. Both sides. So so we're about to have a federal election in May. Uh, the odds are now that the Labor Party will win, but they have a policy that allows uranium mining. Right. So that that's not an issue. The state government have already said that we are allowed to proceed because we've got all the permits um, that that the state government uh, provides. So they've said that we can move forward. Right, and so that's not going to affect your secondary permits or licenses at all. No, 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 it can't. In fact, it can't, and that's a good question because the government, um, when they read into Parliament their uranium policy, they made it quite clear that they couldn't use that secondary process to frustrate our, our operation, and they haven't been. Right. Okay. So that brings it back to the economics here. So you know, you're going to at some point. You you got some cash in in the bank at the moment. How much have you? How much are you sitting on? We got 2.4 in the bank and, and we'll probably spend a million over the next quarter. Right. And so that'll see you through, I don't know, what was the timeline on that? Next financial year. Right. Okay. So it, that gets you through the next financial year. So there's a lot of things that have got to move in the marketplace for, for you to be able to go and raise additional capital to get this thing into production. Not least of all, clearly, the, the spot price. Uh, and then it's a question of you know how cheap or how expensive that money is. Yeah. Um, but you're ready to go, obviously, looking at secondary permits. Um, and you're, from what you said earlier, that also puts you in a very good position compared to a lot of the, the juniors out there. Not everyone has the permits or even DFSs in place uh, for people to be able to make that economic assessment. So you're feeling quietly confident you can get through to the point where you think the market will move. Yes. Well, well yes, absolutely. And you know, I've, I've run junior companies, I've been associated with unions for a long time. And, you know, you do have to go out and tap the market now and again. We have very supportive shareholders. So the last time we did a raise, uh, both our, our, 
or 10% shareholder in Paradise and 14% shareholder in um, Forest Family Investments. They both they both followed their money. So, you know, we we have very good support from our brokers. So if we need to raise money, you know, to keep the lights on, if you like, that's not a problem. Right. So, so we, um, yeah, that's 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 not an issue. Now the question is, you know, we get asked a lot: How does a company that's capitalized at thirty-six million dollars raise that much money? Well, there's two answers to that. One is if the market recovers to the point where we can make this work, then you're going to have growth in your equity side. Your, your market cap will grow. Uh, and the second thing is that when you look at this project from a technical standpoint, how, how quite simple it is, the low technical risk of this project, um, and you look at where uh, a lot of commentators think the price is going to go in terms of the spot price, so the consensus price forecast, if you like, um, it does take us up to where we need to be. So, you know, you got to remember that it's a two-year build. So say we, we go into financial investment decision in 20 and we decide mid 20 that, yes, we're going to, we're going to go on this. We've got financing. We're going to go, you know, it's mid 22 before you're producing. Now by mid 22, the general consensus is that, is that the, the um, median consensus price is around 51. And if you add the normal margin to that, that you would see historically on a $50 price, it's up around 62. So those are just prices. And, and that's stuff we'd like to get into the market. We've got a lot of information on this and that's stuff we want to get out there. Um, but I think, uh, and, and that's that 62 would be a great price. 55 would be, would work for us. 62 would be fantastic. So it's going to be market led. And, and as I say, it'll be market led by us getting the contracts. We've done a lot of work with banks. We know what our floor price needs to be. And so that's the trick. So get the contracts at the price that will allow the debt and that'll allow the equity. You know, it's, it's hard work. It's not, I'm not saying, you know, I don't, I'm not delusional. I don't think this is going to be easy. But I do believe that if the prices get to where we need them to be, we will make it work. And we have built mines before. So that bit of it, once the financing is done, that bit of it will be, ironically, it'll be the easy bit. No, I, I, I understand that. And, and I think the, I think people should, um appreciate the fact that you have done this before or been in a different space and, and th these these things you know there are cycles and they run they play the same way generally um can we just you touched upon your shareholders there um obviously the forest family you know very well known um paradise investment i i, I i've not heard of them are they an aussie outfit yeah they're based in sydney so run by used to be a fund run by david paradise um, they, they run, uh, I think they, they basically do high net worth money, um, very successful. They've had, they've had very good yields, good returns. Um, they're, what's the best way to smart conservative is probably the best way. Right. Um, they actually, they actually, uh, like the uranium space. They have a few investments in uranium. Um, they also invested in BC iron and did very well out of that. So they they, and I have a history. Mm -hmm. uh, so they're, you know, they're backing, I guess they're backing the, the jockey as well as the horse. And what about Michael Fuster? So Michael was, uh, he's a geologist. He was the founder of the company. Um, so he's, he's been in since the beginning, um, slowly diluted down. But Michael, uh, you know, he very strongly um, likes the uranium space. I mean, he's, this is his baby, if you like, and there's nothing, Nothing I'm going to enjoy better than than handing Michael the scissors to cut the ribbon at the opening ceremony. I mean, Michael deserves to be there for that. So, I mean, so how much money's actually gone into the the company then from the start? Well, not from the start. In the latest 
Um, well, we okay. So since I got involved, yeah, uh, it would be around forty-three million. Give or take. That's about okay. what we've. Spent. Um, the DFS was about thirty million on time, on budget. I might say, including two test pits. Um, yeah. So we have. Um, We've had, uh, yeah, in my time, I think it's around that much. Right. And then, so obviously, market cap is what it is today. No, you know, I, 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 didn't, I didn't look to be quite honest. It says 37.3 on the yeah. presentations. So, you know, there, there, there are bats. So, you, you're, let, let's be generous and say, and it's a dollar for dollar at the moment, all right? Um, because it's all price led. The, the commodity prices is, is going to determine that. It, it will come back as the spot price changes. Um, what are you? What are your shareholders nervous about? What are the things they talk to you about? You know, at the shareholder meetings, certainly the larger ones. Um, they talk to me about the the government approvals. That, that's always an issue. Um, they ask about um, this federal government with the election coming up. Um, you know, we've made it pretty clear uh, there is there is a condition in our public environmental review that we uh, uh, we we initiate substantive works by uh, December uh, 21, I think it is, uh, which we expect to do. Um, so, so we, um, you know, we expect to be in, on current plans, we'll be well into construction by that point. Uh, that's a condition of the PER that the minister can, can roll it over to another five years if he wants. Um, you know, there's environmental activism. Um, there's groups who don't want us to do this. Uh, it's frustrating, personally, because I think when you look at clean energy, this is one of the cleanest, but, you know, we deal with that. Um, it's mainly the price. Section 232, of course, has been on everyone's lips for the last year. Um, and, you know, a lot of them are asking the questions that you saw on Twitter. Um, so those are, those are, those, that was actually a really great exercise to see people ask yeah, I, 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 think, I think it was, and you know, we need to, need to thank a lot of people for their, their contributions. Like I say, it's a very emotive subject. It's it pol it polarizing in, in a way. So you, your shareholders sort of are betting on the fact that the price will come back, and it's just a question of when, not if. So they're, they're fully supportive financially. Well, I, think, I think they're also... Um, some of them will be will be betting that the Alligator River project also has some good results. Well, let's tell me tell me about that. We did we did we should come back to that. So tell me about Alligator River. So Alligator River, as I said in my opening, is basically uh, a geological province uh, in the northern territory of, of Australia. Uh, mm -hmm. Part of it is covered by Kakadu National Park, so it's obviously off limits. Um, Cameco, who we bought the project from, has done a great job of amassing a large tenement block over eighty kilometers long. Um, if, if you were to put this tenement block and, and, and put it on top of the Athabasca Basin, you would see that's quite a large land position. It's sitting on some very perspective to geology. The geology is very similar to the Athabasca Basin. It's unconformity style uranium deposits. And we have all the styles. We have, we have uh, ranger style, um, which would be like this, uh, the, the, the basement style deposits that you have in the Athabasca. We've got the MacArthur River style, Cigar Lake style. Those all exist. We, we can see the structures. Um, the thing that's happened is because of uranium politics in Australia, there was a three mines uranium policy in Australia for a long time. And because of that, we had three operating mines. Nobody was doing uranium exploration. So this area, while exploration in the 80s and 90s was going gangbusters in the Athabasca Basin, nothing was happening in, in the Alligator River province. So we're basically sitting on a piece of ground 
that's as prospective as anything in the Athabasca Basin that has not been explored since 1980. That's what we're sitting on, and that's the value proposition. Right. So we've basically done some preliminary work. We've identified some walk-up targets. One's called Suchwau and Sheba, and the other one's called Angularly. Those are smaller high-grade targets, and we've also got targets that look like Jabaluka and Ranger uh, called Condor and South Plank, and those are our next-generation projects. Right. We have what Donald Rumsfeld once called a target-rich environment. Right. So, you know, we have a lot of work to do. I'd love a partner to come in and help us with this. Yeah. Um, you know, we would, you could easily spend $15 million a year up there generating targets, world-class targets. So, you know, there's a lot of work to do. We've got a good team, experienced team. Uh, one of the geologists came across from Cameco, uh, Penny Sinclair working with us, doing a great job. Um, our, our, our general manager of geology, Xavier Moreau, has been in uranium, I think, before he was born, frankly. Um, but he loves uranium. So, you know, we've got a really dedicated team and we're looking forward to the field team. Does it frustrate you that that's not getting valued? You're not getting the reflective value that you think is there? I, I, think, I, think we've got, I think we've got people watching us because of it. I think there are people going, okay, I can see a catalyst, a short-term catalyst. You know, the problem when you develop a project is that you go through the initial phase, a bit like being married, you know, you go through the honeymoon period, it's all great. And I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you know, you, you got your, you, you know, and then that's the Mulga Rock project, right? That's that's ready for an anniversary party or something. But you know, angularly, angularly is the thing that's going to really generate uh, short-term news flow. Um, so you've got this existential thing, which is the uranium market. But you know, the thing that we can control is, you know, at Mulga Rock, we continue the permitting process, but angularly is to go up and drill some of these targets. Right. I mean, I mean, so you said that people are watching you. And you use the phrase short term there. Um, but you ha have you been approached by people? Or is it just too difficult in this market for people, people other than, if, unless they've got cash, like a Cameco, no one's gonna, has anyone approached you to discuss, well, why don't we look at that project before you do some kind of joint venture? I'm trying to remember if I disclose this or not. I think we've, I think we'd have to disclose it. Pardon me. <laughs> Well, I could release this through the ASX, so that would do it. Um, I think we, we have talked to parties, there are interested parties, and certainly um, I got a good reception at PDAC. And, you know, there are, there are people who uh, work in Canada who, who know this part of the world and, and uh, you know, would, would express some interest. So we're kind of, we're pulling all the levers, if you like. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. So are they, would they be strategic investors or strategic uh, partnerships who perhaps want to operate, or you know, what, what, what's, or are you looking at all the above? All of the above, yeah, absolutely. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, so, you, I mean, I, I asked a question a second ago about valuation. I mean, how do, how are you valuing your assets? You obviously, you've you've got the assets under the ground. You've what, what else have you um, got on the books, which you think is undervalued? Those are the two. Those are our projects. Oh, actually. Huh. That's funny. We have a we have a base metal project which is directly north of um, uh, Mulder Rock. And what's interesting about Mulder Rock? Mulder Rock has two deposits: Mulder Rock East, Mulder Rock West. Nothing complicated. Mulder Rock East is full of base metals. We we did look at extracting them, but they they the problem is they economically they don't stack up because base metal prices are on a completely different cycle to uranium. So. 
you might end up subsidizing base metal production one year and making money the next. So it, it doesn't really work. But Mulga Rock West doesn't have any base metals. And we started to think why this was. And we started to do some really good geology. And we discovered that the provenance for the metals that were trapped in this river channel at Mulga Rock East is to the northeast. And there's this large, long, long-lived sedimentary channel, which is perspective for proto-resort base metal deposits, like the Carthur River in Queensland, like Mount Isa, like Sullivan in Canada. Yet it's completely covered and blind and no one's done any work there. So what we've done is we've actually put that into a separate vehicle. It's a wholly owned vehicle called Velo, Velo Resources. And we, we want to um, either spin that out corporately or bring in a joint venture partner. We don't want to get uh, sidelined into base metals from uranium. We are a uranium company, but we do have this asset. It's a huge ground holding that's sitting on this year's unexplored ground that's perspective for Sullivan style, you know, Mount Isa style base metal deposits, uh, Broken Hill style base metal deposits. So, you know, that's a big target for us. And, and so we, we want to move that. We want to get some value for our shareholders. We'll either put that into a separate vehicle, um, you know, to make sure that we don't conflate the two the two metals, uh, but we do, we do, we do want to see shareholders get value from that. So we're looking at opportunities for that project as well. Um, that clearly doesn't have a lot of value uh, in terms of valuation on the company, but I think by putting it into a separate vehicle and, and having someone concentrate on, you know, what's essentially a new province, totally under unexplored, um, that could generate a lot of upside. Right. Okay. Thank, thank, thanks for that. Look, I, I appreciate the. This is just the, fir the first time we've we've met you, and the first time you know our viewers will um, have possibly heard this story. So thanks for going through that. Can you give me five reasons why you think investors should be considering Vimy as an investment proposition? Plays right now at our current valuation compared to some of our peers in terms of an upturn in the uranium market. I think at, at the current market cap, we have had some good growth in the last couple of months. We've We've slowly crept up, but I, I still think there's a lot of value left. Um, you've basically got a team of people who want to build a mine. So we're not about mining the market. You know, we're, we're all people who've built mines. I love nothing more than a mine opening. You know, it's it's a great it's a great feeling to cut a ribbon at a mine that you've built and provided several hundred jobs. That's a great feeling. And so you've got people who are serious about getting into production. Um, the fact that we now have a pipeline of projects, I think that's important both for the long-term and short-term. So Mulga Rock, um, you know, as I said, that needs the tide to rise. I've, I've made my, state, my, my my position clear on where I think the uranium price is going. Uh, as I say, it's not technically difficult. So you do have uranium mines around the world which do have technical difficulties. This is not one of them. Um, we have some good shareholders. Uh, you know, we've got very strong backing. Shareholders have been in there for a long time who support us. We have uh, great brokers who are supporting us as well. Um, so, you know, we've got that, that foundation put aside. Um, but I think, I think, you know, it's what, the thing I love most about this industry and Vimy is, is uranium is different. Even though I like to say it's the, the same as any other commodity, it is emotion. You're right. It is. And the people working here worked in uranium for a long time. 1981, my first summer job underground at Uranium City, Saskatchewan. So it's in my blood, it's in the blood of the GM, it's in the blood of everyone who works here. And you know that, that's important to have passion and have vision. And I think that's what we have. Now, I'm not saying our peers don't, 
Um, but when you look around, there's very few of our peers who've actually built mines. And so you've got a dedicated team of people who can do this. And people always talk about a can-do attitude. Well, we're a has-done attitude, right? So I think that's important. You know, we know we know the risks of bringing a mine into production, yet we still have confidence that we can do this. Fantastic. I think that, I think that's a great summary and a great way to finish this uh, interview. Mike, thanks very much for your time. I really enjoyed uh, listening to you, being very frank and uh, honest about you know two three two and uh, what's going on out there. Be too honest, I think. <laughs> uh, it's actually I've put it out there before. I'm fantastic, Mike. Look, thanks, thanks again. We look forward to catching up with you again soon and hearing more about the story. And I'll see you when I'm in London for that beer. Wonderful, you're on. Okay, mate. Cheers. Thank you very much for watching our video. We do aim to give you informed and intelligent information with which to make your investment decisions. So if you liked what you just saw, please give us a thumbs up. And if you want to see more insightful, in-depth, honest and unbiased interviews, then please click the subscribe button. So thanks again for watching and we look forward to seeing you again soon.